2: Right now on Fast, the Bank of England telling UK pension funds they've got three days to get their you-know-whats in order. The BOE will end its emergency intervention Friday. That headline, flipping the markets upside down, will break down why the UK's pension problems are rippling to our shores. Plus, gig shock shares of Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash thinking on a proposal by the biden administration to change the status for their workers we'll look at why going from contractor to employee is such a big deal and later chips get whacked again the smh down another three percent more misery at meta and the ceo of mgm resorts sets to, to join us here on fast money his stock dropping almost seven percent this week i'm melissa lee this is fast money live at the nasdaq market site a full house tonight here at the nasdaq tim seymour karen feinerman bono and eisen and dan nathan all here on set. And we start off with a big shock to markets, courtesy of the Bank of England. The S&P sharply giving up a gain of nearly a full percent as the Bank of England set a hard deadline to end its intervention this Friday. The Nasdaq set a new two-year low and the Dow lost nearly all of a 400-plus point gain to end basically flat. The move comes after Governor Andrew Bailey urged pension funds to rebalance quickly, saying, quote, my message is you've got three days left now. You've got to get this done. He added, quote, the essence of financial stability is that intervention is temporary. It's not prolonged. So what's your take on this deadline and the market's reaction to these very dire words, Tim?
3: Look, the minute you start talking about bailing out U.K. pension funds and that there's an organized central bank intervention that wasn't about a central bank losing its resolve, this wasn't about central banks running back in. And, that, you know, look, a lot of people thought that this was a case. How could they be buying bonds while they're cranking up uh, their budget and making things look a lot more difficult for their currency? But that's as a function of those things. They referred to the fire sale dynamics that they were in there to defend. So uh, what seemed like last week it was just a central bank trying to put some order after the prime minister went in. There, when in fact, this is really the culmination of months uh, of volatility in gilts and in the UK, but are in sovereign debt around the world. We talk all the time on this show about the most liquid asset classes, but those that, those that are the most levered. So, again, you, you want to talk about too big to fail. I mean, UK pension funds effectively are that to the UK. Um, nothing like your central bank governor basically calling out to the world that you're scrambling and you're trying to sell positions that you have margin calls on. Not so good. Um, And it doesn't get better from from here. And, again, we're talking about we're now using those acronyms again, CLOs. We're talking about the collateralized leverage obligation market, which is a trillion in size. And today was a very big headline and, on some level, a a new leg to this journey that we've been in uh, with markets over the last 15 months.
2: Yeah, part of the key to understanding this whole pension story in the UK is understanding that what they have there, a popular investing strategy on on the part of pensions, is a liability driven investment strategy, which is basically defined benefits. So they guarantee payouts. And so what has happened here with this turmoil going on in the UK is that they've all of a sudden got a huge hole to fill when it comes to the value of their bonds. And these strategies, you're pointing this out, they're leveraged strategies because they use derivatives here as an overlay
1: they've got you that's really the only way that you can guarantee that you don't fall below below a certain threshold or go above a certain threshold and i think really what's been holding markets up somewhat and have kept people from absolutely running from the doors is this notion that there is not financial contagion this time is different and everyone has said, this is what's different. Well, I'll tell you, if you see volatility in sovereigns, that is the underlying pricing mechanism for every other financial assets, whether it be mortgages or credit or whatever else, or even if you're looking at equities, you're definitely going to look at equities vis-a-vis what you can get in risk-free. And so the next point is, who is the next buyer? Aside from pensions, that is, aside from the central bank, that is one of the largest Buyers of index type of uh, security. So, you know, I, I I will understand the B of E saying this has to be a temporary intervention because you don't want the the um, you don't want it to appear that markets are being manipulated. But I would argue that fiscal policy, rather monetary policy, for the last decade has been kind of put where we want it to be. So, you know, it's a fine balance between uh, short term solution and just understanding what the medicine truly is going to be and what it's going to take to provide stability.
4: Yeah. So again, you know, history rhyming, if not repeating, Tim just used CLO collateralized loan obligations in the summer of 2007, when the first one blew up in Europe, nobody, I mean, like nobody had them on their bingo card, right? And so think about all the things that we're trying to figure out afterwards as it relates to the plumbing of the financial system. so here we are now, liability-driven investments. I, you know, again, I hadn't heard about it until our friend Peter Buchvar is coming on in a second. You know, started writing about it a few weeks ago, and these are the sorts of things that a lot of investors they will shoot first and ask questions later, especially in a market like this. The last thing I'll just say is that I, I don't know about you guys. I don't like deadlines. I don't like deadlines for for you know big fund organizations. You know that have these kind of leverage sorts of situations that they need to get them. People start kind of harder to sell. <laughs> <But> they, people <laughs> Everybody but then, you knows you has got a deadline. About about a deadline. But, but people shoot against it. They look and right. see what's in there, and that's the thing, and it has the potential to snowball.
5: Yeah, yeah that, I, I was really surprised by this. Where, where did this three days come from? What was the—assuming it was a very rational thing, let's say that. Right. We don't know for sure because they've had some missteps recently. Why? Why, why do that? Why, why telegraph, right? We're giant fire for three days and then not— Or do they think the problem has been addressed adequately and they just want to wrap it up? I don't know. So not knowing isn't a great feeling. Or something really (laughs) bad happens on the fourth day.
3: Yes, yes, there's that. The other... Part of of any of these deals is that there were banks involved that that basically sliced these things up and put them into different securities. And I'm not saying that the banks have the same exposure that they had uh, 14 or 15 years ago. But but you, if nothing else, you can be sure that a lot of this kind of business was great business for the banks, and this isn't business that they're going to be doing anytime soon. Yeah. And, and and but I I do think that the credit implications from this market, and we talk about well, high yield hasn't really blown out yet. Well, you know, high yield is at five percent today. It was at three and a quarter in March. Uh, and that's spread, folks. that's that's you know interest rates have gone up three hundred basis points too. so So when you think about a levered buyer, borrower in an environment where uh, there is significantly slower growth, and we've only started to get it, Meanwhile, labor costs stay high. It's just not a great environment. And this is the credit side of where things go. We haven't had any credit exposure. We priced in recession. We priced in lower multiples. Uh, but we haven't really seen this yet.
2: Let's get more on the impact of the BOE's move and bring in Peter Bookvar, the chief investment officer with Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contribu- contributor. Peter, great to have you with us, especially on a day like today. In, in your view, is there a transmission mechanism to, from all this you know, chaos and volatility in the UK to the United States that we should be worried about?
6: Well, I think it's an example of a central bank that's having difficulty extricating themselves from their policies over the last couple of years. We know there's tremendous pressure on Corotta. There's tremendous pressure on Lagarde. There's tremendous pressure on the Fed to regain their credibility at the same time, not really losing control of the bond market and not having it disrupt the economy. So all these central bankers are trying to do the same thing all at once. Now, the Bank of England sort of got run over from this over situation, as you guys just discussed, with the pension funds. But just because it happened there doesn't mean that there are other uh, sort of accidents waiting to happen as the cost of capital goes up and leverage players get exposed.
2: So I guess sir, the, let me re ask the question in, in two sort of parts, Peter, and that is um, when it comes to these pensions having to Write their ship in three days, and all this happening, you know, in a a very compressed amount of time. Should we be worried about bank exposure, U.S. bank exposure to any of this? Should we? I mean, are there ways in which this is transmitted, not just the knock-on effect onto our bond market in our yields? And then, secondly, in terms of accidents happening around the world, is the worry that it's not just one accident, one accident can happen, but it's a cumulative effect of several accidents? you know, almost at once.
6: Right, well, in the first question, I think the UK pension situation was sort of enabled by UK banks. And one of the things that the Bank of England did yesterday was set up a temporary facility, and it was called temporary, uh, to try to help the banks deal with their LDI clients. The question with the US banks is, do pension funds here have similar uh, type structures? Uh, in order for them to meet their liabilities and i think that they do but we'll have to see how banks are now managing that relationship but it's not clear yet whether it will there will be a direct spillover as opposed to something indirect the second question sort of the broader big picture spillover it's yeah it's this just this global unwind of a sovereign bond bubble that was the biggest financial bubble ever where you go <laughs> from negative interest rates and zero interest rates to positive interest rates of substance in a very short period of time. And there's no question that people get off sides. I mean, that's the purpose of monetary policy on the easing side. It's to encourage you to borrow. And there are going to be some entities that borrow a lot more than others. And then when you see a very sh- sharp reversal in a very compressed period of time, those that borrow too much then run into trouble. So that example, is a global situation. So then you have the rise in the cost of capital. It filters into economic activity. Who gets uh, financing? Who does not? Who's got a better balance sheet? Who does not? That all then slows growth. At the same time, inflation itself is slowing economic growth, particularly in Europe with the energy situation, and so on and so on.
5: Peter, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So can you explain to me the magnitude of the UK problem here and this strategy to address it in three days?
6: Well, the, the strategy, what the Bank of England purposely did a few weeks ago when they stepped in was to buy UK pension funds time that started two weeks ago. So the clock is not just three days. Two weeks ago, they said, we are going to make this temporary. We are going to stop in the middle of October. And then we were reminded again this morning when they said they are adding the linkers as, as what they're doing and they started this facility yesterday. They told people this morning, we're ending this on Friday. So then what Bailey said this afternoon was just a reminder of something that we've already known. And Bailey's saying, we hope that the time we bought you over the past couple of weeks was widely utilized and that you've delevered. You've come up with more collateral. The banks are now going to work with you. So in the following three days, hopefully the situation has been dealt with and there are no major accidents uh, to come by Friday afternoon.
2: So what's your take on the market sell-off on these comments, which, I mean, theoretically, the deadline was known. And so is, is, there a, is there a thinking that the BOE was going to extend ultimately, and they did it, and they're like, you know what, we're out of here, we're done. And, and the market wasn't expecting I, that. I
6: think it was, yeah, I, I think it was more of just, it was a late-day thing. The market mm-hmm. is on edge anyway because of high rates, but the market's also on edge because of the potential earnings landmine we are about to enter. So that, combined with what's going on with rates, I think is what that uh, sort of dangerous situation that that we're now seeing that culminated in that late-day sell-off.
2: Yeah. Peter, thanks so much. Peter Bookvar, Bleakley. Thanks. Turning turning now to the big interview of this afternoon. Shortly before the BOE headlines hit, our own Sarah Eisen sat down with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to discuss her thoughts on the U.K.'s policies. The secretary said she has plans to sit down with the U.K. finance minister to discuss the strategy. Sarah joined us now from Washington. That should be an interesting meeting, Sarah.
7: Absolutely, Melissa. Thank you. My big takeaway from the, the meeting and from the conversation with Yellen is she's characterizing the U.S. economy as strong, despite all the concerns right now that you guys have just been talking about, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and a slowing global economy. Of course, we touched on what's happening overseas, the fiscal policy decisions in the U.K. that have hit bonds and the pound, as you guys have just been mentioning, this intervention by the Bank of England to try to calm things down. Here's what Secretary Yellen said about it.
8: I have been watching U.K. developments quite closely. I um, will be—I have met with— uh, the chance, Chancellor Kwarteng, and I expect to meet with him again. I don't want to comment on UK policy, but um, I am going to try to understand what the impact of those policies and their rationale is.
7: I, I pushed her on the point to try to get her to talk more, and she did add that her general view, view right now is that central banks play the lead and fiscal policy should be complementary. Which is a shot at the new British government and its new growth policy, which sparked all of this. Now, of course, I also asked Secretary Yellen if she was concerned about the broader volatility in the bond market and whether there was reason to worry about liquidity and financial stability. Listen to what she said.
8: There have been a lot of underlying shocks, decisions, for example, OPEC's uh, w- unfortunate, very unfortunate, and I think unwise decision. Um, to reduce uh, oil production. So there have been shocks and shocks relating to uh, Russia, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine uh, and other you know, policy too, shocks. Right? While you know, there is some concern about liquidity in the markets, um, I don't think we've seen anything that rises to the level of a serious concern.
7: Another big headline from Secretary Yellen, she said it was in the best interest of the United States to have a market value exchange rate, i.e., don't expect us to intervene in the foreign exchange market anytime soon. It was in response to a question I asked about emerging markets having to step in, Japan having to step in because the dollar is so strong. She said it reflects the market fundamentals. Melissa, my biggest takeaway for investors and traders, and I'd love to hear what the gang thinks, is that there's a bit of a disconnect. If you were expecting the Treasury or the Fed to step in here like we're seeing in the UK and in Japan and in other countries, you know, she's not flashing the alarm bells about the economy, about the market functioning, about the strength of the dollar and even the UK when it comes to the spillover effects to the U.S.
2: Yeah, um, it's amazing. I don't know if it's amazing, but it's interesting that sort of the monolithic um, front that Treasury and the Fed is presenting to the American people when it comes to fighting inflation. Um, So, Sarah, thank you so much for bringing us that interview. Fascinating stuff. Um, I don't know, so so the dollar will remain high. We're going to keep going at it. And
3: there's no problems. Dollar went high. As the dollar goes higher, by the way, I bet the VIX goes higher. And, and, and by the way, this is great. Dan brought this up on the call. I'll let him explain his thesis, but it's great for small caps. Uh, but I'll just get back to Yellen. First of all, Yellen's been around uh, forever, and I mean this in a positive way. It's <laughs> complimentary. She's she's actually seen so many different uh, crises in administrations. And, and her, her discussion, though, about, uh, about fiscal policy, let, let's not forget she's part of the administration now. Um, and what we're seeing around the world are administrations that are going through political cycles right. that do not let like what's happening with monetary policy, um, and I, I think we're given ground in this country, too. And again, our central bank's independent, um, but the administration's not independent. They're, they have they have some goals out there. I'll just say one more thing about where this reminds me, though, uh, when I look at European sovereign debt yields. Uh, and we heard the ECB point out today that they can issue debt, and they can issue debt to aid um, higher-yielding economies and those that are hit more by energy issues. But again, it's the ECB looking to monetize what they have that are structural issues. So Italian yields are not terribly far off where they were in the the worst of the sovereign crisis. And so reminding what Peter said, what we all know, this went from a public, excuse me, a private market crisis in the great financial crisis, where it was all shifted on the public balance sheets. And, and we've just been kicking it down the road. And, and, and central banks have forced UK pension funds into this, by the way. I mean, all pension funds have to fund liabilities, and they're pushed out the risk curve. They have no choice. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what every, again, sophisticated investor um, that we rely on in this world has been forced to do.
2: We were just talking the other day about hedges, and now traditional hedges have not worked. Think about pension funds that use bonds as the ballast in their allocations and what a bond's done. Fixed income, remember that? What's that name mean? What do they do now?
4: You know, this really feels like they're going to stick their finger in that hole to plug that, and then they're going to have to do this and then this, and they're going to run out of fingers soon enough. And given all the uncertainty about the global economy, I just think that, again, you know, I I don't think we're on the precipice of anything like it doesn't feel like 07, like that sort of magnitude. Um, But the Fed is going to have to stop QT very soon. I mean, it's just very simple um, because financial conditions are going to get to a point where it really does run the risk of pushing some of these situations over the edge. And if we're waiting for some sort of credit event, that would be the thing. So that's what they'll do after the November 2nd meeting, I suspect, at some point later in this year. Doesn't be-
2: that set us up for a rally, which <clears throat> is a vicious cycle of well, pivot, here, here,
4: here's things harder for the Fed? Here's the good news about this week, with all the money center banks reporting at the end of the week, they're trading very poorly here into it, right? And those outlooks are not going to be great. We spent half the show talking about what Jamie Dimon had to say yesterday. So the lower we go into that is the likelihood that we probably we rally out of it because maybe some of the estimates have come down enough. And this is what we saw in July with the Q2 earnings. They came down enough where it was, they weren't so bad that we kind of rallied out into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I just think it's tough to trade the market setting up for a pivot of, of either QT or monetary policy. I think that adds fuel to the fire and emboldens the Fed to continue along the path that they're currently on. And we can talk about, OK, perhaps, yes, I, I, I'm with you, Dan, that in terms of the, the P.E. multiples, those have definitely come down. But I still think there's a whole heck of a lot of hair on the E part. And that is where investors are focused. And unless that finds a floor, I think, QT, monetary policy, and all the other headwinds will all point down to the fact that we still continue to head lower.
2: Coming up, bank beatdown. JP Morgan close to hitting a new milestone. It's not one you want to celebrate. We've got the details ahead. But first, is the jig up for the gig economy? A new proposal pressuring stocks like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. So will these names still work in your portfolio? The traders got their takes when Fast
9: Money returns.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Gig stocks tumbled today on news. The labor department is weighing a change that could turn a lot of gig workers from contractors to employees, meaning the companies would be required to provide some benefits and protections to drivers, dashers and other freelance workers. Lyft and DoorDash dropping to all time lows today. Uber dropping by as much as 17 percent before pairing some of its losses. Um, Tim, you basically sell Fast Fire because you highlighted the fact that yep. you actually picked Lyft as your, what it was it, five-year we, stock, we,
3: long-term we, stock, whatever it was. We played another yet fun game, which doesn't feel so fun right now, but I gave myself five years. And what I pointed out about Lyft, and I, I'm going to say, and we've said this, though, recently, there are some... Uh, news headlines that seem to punish stocks over and over again, punish them again. Um, you know, to me, with Lyft, we've punished them on their driver issues already. We've punished them on lack of drivers. We've punished them on the ability to actually see that start to normalize. And, and it, to me, um, I, I, I understand that this is pressure. This also feels like another one of those administration of you know, statements at a time of midterm elections that's going to be particularly popular. So I'm not even sure they can do this. Um, so I, I look at this kind of weakness and I think this is actually an idiosyncratic way to get long. Um, I actually like here and this kind of weakness, uh, I'm not running from that pick.
1: Yeah, Tim, uh, I think Tim makes a very good point. I mean, you've, they've already had this battle in California, it's slightly different battleground, but same battle, and we already know, like, the weapons in tow. So, you know, I, I was a bit surprised to see the exacerbated move here. I will say that I wonder what the implications are in terms of the unemployment rate. Because you have all these people that are having work from home or perhaps working multiple jobs and are able to support themselves and have some some worker flexibility. If all of these are brought in house, how is this constructive for, for employment? Now, perhaps this is what the Fed wants. They, they want this unemployment rate to tick up. But is this really where it's going to happen in a meaningful way and slow spending? I don't really see the correlation between someone who's driving Uber and Lyft and door dashing and really taking out of the housing market and taking out of the equity market and taking out of consumer spending. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time putting those two pieces together. I,
2: I think a big issue that investors have to grapple with is, is having gig workers, is that a core. Part of the business model, right? Is that that so important to the business model that if you took it away, it deserves a discount to where it's trading right now, Dan?
4: I don't think it deserves a discount. When you look at the valuation, a lift, on a gap basis, they're not making money right now, not expected to do that for a couple of years. But I think to Tim's point, I mean, this is an industry that's here to stay. They're focused here on North America. I guess right now, the question that investors have do the unit economics make any sense in these businesses? And I know some very smart investors have been asking this question for a very long time. And if you look at a stock like this at all-time lows, you'd say, well, they don't, okay? But here's the deal. They have half their $3.9 billion market cap in cash and about a billion in debt. You can do that math on the enterprise value here, expected to grow sales continually. So if they're going to continue to lose money, I mean, there has to be some light at the end of the tunnel, but I think this looks like a very cheap asset to me down here. I also said that in September. I bought it when, when Tim had his five-year thing. Oh, you I can, had to you sell it, that I compelling. sold it, I, can I took that a component. loss, but right. if I hadn't sold it, it would have been a bigger loss, but it's going to be a hat sign. People like again. This goes back to my final trade. Remember when I said? Remember when I said? A big I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you suggest buying anything in this market right now other than puts. Yeah.
5: So just so people know, a hat size is something south of ten. Right. Yeah. Right. Presumably, a we were talking about how big how seven, guys I'm have. I'm seven. People with big, big heads eight. on Wall Street. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I don't. I I think that I mean clearly these stocks were really penalized today a lot. I don't know if this bad news is fully priced in, but it certainly isn't a certainty that it will happen. Sure. Right? So this to me, I like your idiosyncratic, you know, opportunity to get in. I think, you know, this is a market where any whiff of bad news, panic and sell and then figure it out later. So this is an opportunity, I think.
2: Coming up streaming lower shares of Netflix getting chilled. But is the binging beat beat down nearing an end? The details next. Plus, talk about semi slump. The chip space hitting its lowest level in nearly two years. So how low can they go? Are, is there value out there? The traders are plugging into that one next. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on how stocks closed out the day. The Dow managing to squeeze out a small gain, breaking a four-day losing streak. The S&P and Nasdaq, though, not so lucky, both notching a fifth day of losses. The S&P dropping a little more than a half a percent, while the Nasdaq fell more than one percent, hitting its lowest level since July 2020. A couple of names to highlight here. J.P. Morgan falling almost three percent today, 101.96, closing in on that $100 share mark. Ahead of earnings, the stock is down 10 percent in the last week. And Netflix, one of the worst performers on the S&P, shares dropping almost 7% today. It is down almost 11% in the last week. Karen, which one the, do you want the to The last take?
5: week, like just these last two days or five days worth of, because if there's another three days five to the days, week. Five days. Yeah. Uh, let let, let me training. go with J.P. Morgan. Um, so J.P. Morgan now just over 100. Is it, is it slightly less than 1.5 tangible book value? Not book value, tangible book value, uh, which is a... a A lower number, but that's sort of a really interesting benchmark that it hasn't passed below in a very long time. I think, you know, this any kind of banking crisis, of course, makes banks trade poorly. Um, But I'm long of staying long for earnings, I think, as I've said for a while and been wrong for sure. Although I still love Jamie. That's true. But clearly, yes. But um, I just think the valuation here represents a lot of bad things that aren't happening.
2: Yeah. Dan?
4: Where did book um, trough in the financial crisis? And I get it. It was a total I different would say, yeah. It was lower, closer up. to one-ish, probably, or something like that. I yes. Mean, I, I guess, listen, this thing's in a free-for-all, and it's been telling you the story the whole year. And we've been talking about it on the <laughs> desk. It's led to the downside. It's led its peers. It's led to the S&P. It's down 35% of the year. It's making a new 52-week low. Nearly a year and a um, nearly a year and a half low. And so, again, I mean, I have no idea what they're going to say based on his commentary to CNBC yesterday. I can't imagine the outlook's going to be particularly good. So this one's not great. And just real quickly on the Netflix, it feels kind of binary. The stock has literally traded in this really tight range for two months, massively outperforming the NASDAQ. If they have a shred of good news to say, that thing's filling in that gap. It's going, you know, up 50 bucks in a straight line. But if they were to guide down And again, we're not focused on subs. I mean, the, yeah. this
3: commentary is not going to be about subs.
4: Uh, they've changed the conversation conversation
3: to to add supported and password sharing and things like that. All right.
2: Coming up, the chip dip continues. Semi's hitting their lowest levels in nearly two years. But is there a bottom in sight? We're going to dive into that one next. Plus, no magic in Meta's big hardware reveal. Shares heading south despite the company's new VR headset launch. How much lower will the social stock go and how are options traders playing this name? Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Chip Stocks tumbling again. Today's biggest losers, Lamb Research, KLA, and Taiwan Semi. Our next guest believes some names should bottom soon. Ruben Roy is a senior semiconductor analyst at Stiefel. Ruben, great to have you with us. And we want to be clear with our viewers that that right now you can talk about NVIDIA as well as AMD and Intel. So we'll sort of limit to that as well as broader industry trends. Um, But as we see the entire sector continue to slide and continue to trade down on what feels like... The same news again and again one company warns another company warns it the whole group trades down we get the initial restrictions released by the biden administration it gets codified it trades down twice on this how how do you view how much has been de-risked from this sector at this point
10: yeah hi melissa yeah it's it's really about uncertainty right so we did have some of the bigger companies samsung uh, amd as you mentioned micron and a few others talk about lower uh, numbers for Q3 and going into the back end of the year, but the you know, broader group really hasn't cut numbers yet. So I think you know, from an investor perspective, the question is uh, how bad are the cuts going to be and how prolonged are the cuts going to be? We had a couple of years of really strong growth uh, well above trend lines, we've had a couple of years of really strong pricing in the group, and so I think there's still that uncertainty. What's what's the impact uh, to the broader group as you know things like lead times and supply improvements start to hit hit you know hit hit the space?
2: So we're talking about cuts to estimates. We're talking about just the macro environment in the United States at this point, right? I mean, it's supply chain issues, it's demand issues, orders, things like that. But you're not even factoring necessarily. The potential impact from the from the enforcement of these export restrictions. Is that correct? That's like a whole other basket or bucket of estimate cuts to come?
10: Absolutely. So we, we really don't know the extent of the export restrictions. We had some more news on Friday. We have a call coming up later on this week from the DOC where we're going to get a little more color and detail around uh, what the thought is around restrictions. In our sense is that the restrictions are likely to end up being something that is a near-term event rather than a long-term event. We've seen the semiconductor companies and providers of high tech you know, work through these restrictions either by licensing or figuring out workarounds to technology that can be exported to some of these uh, uh, countries. But certainly, again, we have uncertainty here, and I think that's gonna be an overhang to the space as well.
2: So when you think about the worst case scenario, factoring these two sort of reasons why estimates might have to be cut, has that been reflected in the valuations of AMD, of Intel and Nvidia, the three stocks you currently cover?
10: We think so for AMD. So AMD, we had a pretty massive uh, realignment of our estimates for Q3 and we took the rest of the estimates down through next year, in fact, our earnings estimate for AMD for next year is down 20%, stocks down 60% year to date. So we think a lot of the bad news is reflected in the way tra- shares are trading. We took a look at valuation on that one. It's trading near trough uh, relative to kind of the trough valuations over the last five years. So you know, for that one, uh, specifically AMD, you know, we think we've, we've seen a lot of the bad news and it's reflected in the way the shares have traded. We think we have a little more to go potentially in the Nvidia. The valuation hasn't come in as much. Uh, we have got gotten a little bit of an estimate cut there, but you know, certainly some more uncertainties around that one. So sort of a wait and see. But you know, from our perspective, AMD, uh, we've had a clearing event and uh, we think the stock's setting up well as we get into earnings season in a couple of weeks' time.
4: Um, Thoughts on that Gartner data? I'm sure you saw it down 19.5% for Q3. That followed nearly a 13% decline in Q2. I think it was the steepest decline in in the history since Gartner has been tracking this data. From your experience, do you usually see, like, what what do we expect after a down 20% year over year quarter in PCs? Because to me, it just doesn't feel like we're near a bottom at this point.
10: Yeah, it's true. It's a good point. And, you know, PCs, you know, sort of had a little bit of an abnormal growth spurt as we all went to work from home, learn from home, et cetera. And so we're kind of normalizing and, you know, kind of where is the bottom? What's the right unit number in terms of shipments? Last year, we saw well above 300 million units, closer to 350 million units of PCs being shipped. And so we're trying to figure out what the right normalized run rate of units of PCs being shipped is. And we, you know, it's too early to tell. So, Probably some more downside, but here again, when you think about AMD, it's a company that's taking market share. They're underrepresented, in our view, in both consumer and commercial PCs. And, you know, as they continue to gain some share in those markets, even with a lower overall unit, TAM, we think uh, it's a pretty good setup for that company specifically.
2: Ruben, thanks for joining us.
10: Thanks for having me.
2: Ruben Roy of Stiefel. Uh, Karen, AMD is one that you have? I have dipped my
5: toe in AMD, we were talking about it, and lost uh, it? a toe. You still have it? The yeah. toe. Yeah. No, I still have it. Um, I meant the toe. I actually, no, the Less toe, the I toe. don't know. Right. <laughs> um, but I have big feet, so I have, you know, there's some margin for error there. So I think that, um, I mean, the valuation in AMD, and I look at NVIDIA, that valuation to me still seems to be lofty. Right. I know they're not exactly the same, but these things are trading generally together now. And that sort of seems like an interesting pairs trade to me. Mm. Long, AMD, AMD, short, Nvidia. video.
2: Yeah. The idea that estimates have not come down yet for a wide swath of the sector is an interesting one. I mean, that just spells, I mean, to me, it seems like more pain is in the cards at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to support the thesis that this was more of a supply or an inventory situation versus a demand situation. I think people have yet to wrap their mind around that. I very much believe that it is still, like, fine, even if we're through the supply, argue that we're through the supply, worse of the supply side issues, argue that we're through the bulk of or we'll promote our way out of inventory issues. what's What's the next leg for demand? And until that question is answered, I don't understand how you don't bring down expectations, earning expectations.
3: We're, we're every day we're going more from supply shortage to supply, you know, oversupply, lack of demand. And again, if you look at the SMH to where it was pre-COVID, it was 150 even at a peak after it had a run. So put that in context. Wow. All
2: right. Coming up, Meta debuts a new VR headset and the stock drops. Does Zuckerberg have his head stuck in the clouds? We'll discuss oh, that next. And oh. throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here's a board member of Ulta Beauty.
7: Latinos are bringing even more new energy to our country.
2: They're the fastest growing segment and a fuel for growth in nearly every industry you can think of, and we're not slowing down. So what's important for you to think about
9: is how am I unlocking the power of this very important and significant community? Being a Latina, everything there is about you is an absolute
2: gift. It's a competitive advantage the way that I think about it. So never hold back from being who you are and offering the perspective that has shaped you your entire life. That's the real competitive advantage. Welcome back to fast money meta platforms tumbling to its lowest level in nearly four years the company formerly known as Facebook announcing a brand new version of its oculus headset today a mixed reality unit that will cost 1500 bucks its previous version was just 400 bucks The new product launch comes as analysts at Atlantic equities downgraded meta to a neutral slash the price target by 24% the analyst writes that macro headwinds and increasing competition for ad dollars pose significant challenges to Meta's growth, so it's got these issues. Theoretically, it's got a VR headset that's really expensive. Tim, the stock is not doing well. What do you make of it? No,
3: and it's you know it doesn't want to be known as a hardware company either. So it, it, it's it, I, I go back to their core business though, and I look at you know the ad business and the CPMS, and they were down 20% when they talked about them the last time, and the numbers that we've gotten since then, they're they're down another four points or so in August. So um, expectations are not great here, and that's the good news for the stock because uh, the multiple clearly has it, and I, I think that's really what it comes down to. At what point, and I've said this, though, that these media companies have priced in uh, recessionary headwinds. They were the first ones to go. Facebook has its own existential issues, but um, I think think you can own Facebook here.
2: Uh, Meantime, action in Facebook's options. Betting the stock is headed for even more losses. Mike Coe's got the action, Mike.
10: Yeah, so Meta was the fifth busiest single stock option today. I traded over 400,000 contracts, and the busiest contract among those was the weekly 130 puts. We saw over 14,000 of those trading for about $3.44 a contract. Kind of to Tim's point here, I think what's going on, buyers of these who are pressing their bearish bets, trying to limit their risk because the stock is looking mighty cheap at this point. The last time we started seeing valuations in Meta like this was the fourth quarter of 2018. The company has nearly doubled the revenues and 50% more. EPS now than it did then.
2: Wow. Mike, thank you. Mike co. For more Options Action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time coming up. Should you roll the dice on the casino stocks? Stick around to find out. We'll be joined by Bill Hornbuckle, the president and CEO of MGM Resorts. Much more fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of MGM falling almost 3% today, down more than 30% this year. Contessa Brewer is live from the Global Gaming Expo in Las Vegas with MGM CEO Bill Hornbuckle. Contessa.
0: Melissa, thank you very much. And Bill, great to have you here. Right out of the gate, what we've been talking about on CNBC is the specter of rising interest rates, inflation, consumer sentiment. Because you have so much exposure across demographics, in regionals, in Las Vegas Strip, in sports betting and interactive, and in Macau, are you beginning to see cracks in the domestic and the global economy?
11: Let me focus first on Las Vegas, because clearly it's our home. It's where 60 odd percent of our revenues come from, 65. Uh, Las Vegas remains exceptionally uh, in great shape. Um, our ADRs are up, our occupancy remains strong. Um, it's programming, it's weekends. The momentum we have saw in the first and second quarter has continued. I can, I can tell you that. So this market, while we're not foolish to what may be coming, we have not seen it. And so I think the notion of people traveling, the notion of Las Vegas as a value destination and our presence here combined with, I'll give you a great example, uh, Denver Broncos were in two Sundays ago. I'll give you a dollar for everyone under 25,000 people that weren't there from Denver cheering on their team. So visitation in Las Vegas combined with conventions and some of the internationalists come back is booming. Uh, BetMGM continues to do all the things it was intended to do, and we're very excited about where their business is and where it's going. And obviously, you know the story in Macau fairly well. It's hopefully just re-emerging and reopening, but there's a story to tell there.
0: Well, and part of the story is about this surprise seventh bid for six concessions by Genting, which owns Resorts World, um, here in New York and in Las Vegas as well. Give me a sense of how you're positioned now to have real competition for that concession.
11: Look, I I think it's not only our company. I think it's all six concessionaires. We've been very good to the community and the community to us, the government extensively. Um, We have been highly supportive through all of COVID and taking care of our employees, taking care of all of our SMEs that we deal with. And so I think we're all in really good shape. Obviously, an entry is an entry and we have to treat it very seriously. We're focused on it. Um, We think we have a great proposition going forward. We're answering the government's calls about diversification, about entertainment, about tourism, and the kinds of things we think are going to drive that market in the future. And, you know, the government has its own choice to make when this process is over.
0: Macau is not your only international business. You've completed the acquisition of Leo Vegas in Europe. Give me a sense of how that fits into your international plan.
11: So, as we've stated before and on your show, we're, we're, we think digital is a real place to diversify our business. We have a great partnership with Intain with BetMGM. Again, it's doing all the things it wants to do, but we want and need to go global. Uh, we found Vegas. we think it's got a great team, it's got a platform that uh, sits on the cloud, and so it's expandable and scalable to almost any level. Um, we like what they do, and we like the markets that they're in, so, we see it as an entree. It, look, it's not going to change the profile of the company anytime soon, but it is going to change the trajectory of the business over time, and we like that.
0: One place that you would like to be is California, the most populous state in the nation, right now doesn't have sports gambling. And you and some of your competitors in other areas have partnered together to try and get it on the ballot. But the polling looks like Prop 27, which would allow commercial operators to go in and operate mobile. The polling doesn't look good for you. There's a story in the journal about the coalition pulling back on ad spend. Are you just giving up the fight there?
11: No. Look, we're going to continue to monitor it. Obviously, we've all made an investment at this point. Uh, at one point, we were above 50 percent. We're currently not there. Well, what happened? Um, I think people just didn't want to go forward the initiative. I think the, the idea of, which is a shame, because sports betting is very popular in 26 other states, as you know. The initiative and all of the tax money would have gone towards the homeless. It would have helped tribal gaming in many respects. Um, And so I think people just aren't focused on that issue. It's not what they care about. And I think we wore them out. And so we're going to continue to watch it, fingers crossed, but time to tell.
0: All right, Bill Hornbuckle, great to have you here. Thank you for making time for us. And Melissa, you know, it's really remarkable. You've got these CEOs who are talking about, yes, we see the looming clouds, but gaming tracking 15% above gaming revenue last year for the first six months of this year. It's pretty pretty remarkable. Wow,
2: the resiliency. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer bringing us the interview with the CEO of MGM. Uh, Tim, where do you go in the space? I
3: like casinos, and and that's been tough, but I I think casinos also just are are living under a COVID pandemic. you know, headwind that um, has taken their EBITDA multiple down by, in many cases, two thirds. Um, if you look at MGM, they have probably 12 bucks in cash. They're going to have 25 percent free cash flow yield. They're the number one in, in bet MGM in terms of their online. That business is showing more rationality. Uh, Vegas is still strong. I, I think you're going to be rewarded longer term here.
1: I don't there's, there's no arguing against evaluations. I mean, they're pretty compelling at these levels. I, I still question whether or not you want the exposure to the consumer and, and their propensity and capacity. We know they have propensity to spin. Do they have capacity to spin? I think that's really the question there. I will admit that of, of the casinos, I prefer MGM. You know, they, they don't have the tailwinds and the corresponding headwinds coming out of Macau. Um, and I think they're doing a good job here yeah. in the domestic United States and in Las Vegas. But, again, do I really necessarily want the consumer exposure at this particular? time. I don't, but I do think they are compelling on valuation.
6: Up
2: next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim.
3: Yeah, Meta, we talked about it. I think you've massively downgraded the ad space. I think they can moderate a lot of that spending around the metaverse, and I think at this point the valuation is interesting. I'm long.
5: Chairwoman. Yes. So for me, I like the one-year treasury at north of 4% yield. I think it's an excellent risk-reward.
1: Bonowit. Consolation Brands, Chinese um, drinking band notwithstanding. I think this is one that you can really look into. Diversified, cheap, with growth um, prospects as well.
2: That was a story that we did not get to. We didn't. The proposal to, to, to make civil servants not drink at all, even after hours in China. Seems nuts, but...
3: It makes it tough to you know. To what? It makes a long day. <laughs> right. I have nothing to look forward to. Long day, longer. <laughs> Being somewhere.
4: Dan. Another story we didn't get to. I mean, this mess. I mean, this is a real story. The Twitter, Elon Musk. He's tweeting stuff about Russia, Ukraine. Did he talk to Putin or not, or whatever? I still think I'm going to tell you this, people. You got four up on Twitter, 5420, and you got potentially 20 down. Lower probability. That's how I'm playing it right now.
2: Thanks for watching Fast. Stay back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts right now.
9: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast.